It's a brand new day, and we're putting the AM in American politics. We've seen the darkness of division and despair and are now jumping into the light of a bright path forward. Progress is here, and we're sharing its story with you, for you, all with the help of Signal Boost. Now, here are your hosts, Zerlina Maxwell and Jess McIntosh. Welcome to Signal Boost. This is Jess McIntosh. I'm here with Zerlina Maxwell, and we are joined right now by journalist and co-host of Gaslit Nation, one of the voices who was right on Russia uh, from the jump, Sarah Kenziar. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Oh, thank you for having me. Good morning. As always. Hey. So this morning we wake up post State of the Union. Um, let's start there. How do you, how did you read Joe Biden's response last night, the first 12 minutes that he spent talking about Ukraine? Did, did he say the things that you were hoping that he would and, and what would have been the message that you'd like to hear the most? Uh, listen, I'll be honest with you. I fell asleep and uh, didn't watch it, but <laughs> it's been a long week. It's been uh, but, a long week. Uh, but but I read it and, you know, my thoughts are always the same on this and, and on other issues is we need action. We don't just need the right rhetoric, the right words. We need meaningful action. And in this case, um, sanctions, clamping down on oligarchs. I was glad he said that they were going to do that. They could have been doing that the whole time. They could have been doing that for, you know, decades ago. Um, this whole conflict is the result of them not doing that. So I just hope he, uh, you know, literally puts his money where his mouth is. I mean, I feel like, you know, one of the things that I've been sort of nervous about is, the, I don't know that our imaginations are quite big enough to even discuss, like, the stakes in this particular moment but you said something when you were recently on my peacock show about what's what putin is really doing here i mean and you use the word genocide and i wanted to give you an opportunity to unpack that for us this morning because honestly it feels like that they're invading a sovereign country they're bombing apartment buildings they're killing civilians you know and they're just doing it in our faces. They're doing it blatantly, obviously. Um, when you when you use the word genocide, how do you apply that to this current situation? Yeah, I mean, first I want to clarify that I was agreeing with um, my podcast host on Gaslit Nation, Andrea Chalupa, who made a movie about Stalin's genocide famine in Ukraine called Mr. Jones. Um, that, that famine is the, the Holodomor, which happened in Ukraine uh, in the early 1930s, um, you know, and, and was, was genocide, was mass execution. And Putin reveres Stalin and Putin hates Ukrainians with a ferocity that is not rational. You know, it's not just about reclaiming, um, you know, the resources or, or wealth of the Ukrainian region or, or even it's not just about putting the Soviet Union back together. It's a desire uh, to exterminate the people um, in the process. He finds them incredibly threatening. You know, some of this has to do with his imagined version of uh, Russia, this narrative that he's constructed, you know, the, the history of the region is that, um, you know, what eventually became Russia started in Ukraine. It was uh, Kievian Rus, you know, that's where you find these um, old cathedrals, these, you know, monuments of enormous cultural and religious significance. He wants those and he wants to rewrite the history of Ukraine into his big, broad narrative 
of Putin's Russia, or at least that's what he was consistently doing for the last few decades. I feel like in the last couple of months, and you know, and other people who studied this region for a long time agree with me, um, there's been a really sharp change in his demeanor, either that or he's just letting himself be seen in a way he hasn't before. And you see the fear in the people around him, the people who mm -hmm. um, are with them at those meetings, you see the, the kind of terror in their eyes when he's talking about invading Ukraine, about launching nuclear weapons. Like there's not limitations um, with him, but yes, you know, that part of the intent is simply to annihilate the Ukrainian people. And that's why people, you know, uh, observers of this conflict should not rule out the worst outcomes and should do everything possible to protect uh, Ukrainians who have to live in this situation and who are, are struggling to just keep their families safe. How do you how do you read the the current discussion of his mental state and the possibility that COVID isolation has really gotten to him? Those very strange photos that we see of him, quote unquote, huddling with his advisors from a table like twenty five feet away. Are, are you how much do you uh, subscribe to the theory that he is more unstable than he was just a couple of years ago? And do you think it matters? I, I think it's, he is more unstable, but I always think he, you know, he, this is a brutal dictator and he invaded Ukraine in 2014 and he invaded Georgia in 2008. And so there's a very consistent pattern of imperialistic brutality, uh, you know, that came before the apparent deterioration of his mental state. Um, I, you know, some of this is like, if you look at any dictator in the world, the longer they stay in office, the more paranoid they become, the mm -hmm. more insular they become, the more protective of their regime they become. And in Russia, you know, Putin is considered quite old. Like the average life expectancy in Russia is, is 68 years old. And he's, uh, you know, he's going to be 70 this year. Um, you know, de death is on his mind and he has, and I think he's similar to Trump in this manner, this kind of narcissistic statism where, you know, sometimes I wonder, does, does he, is he so revolted at the idea that the world would go on without him, that he'd rather annihilate the world? And hopefully, oh. hopefully it is not um, at that level. But yeah, I, I see a change um, in the last couple of years. I don't know what caused it. I don't know if it's COVID um, related. And, you know, some folks have speculated other things. There's a difference in his physical appearance. I don't know if that's just bad Botox or he's, you know, drugged mm -hmm. to the gills. Like it, it could be a variety of factors. And because they're an insular dictatorship, uh, we don't know, you know, and his henchmen are too afraid uh, to tell people. Right. Fiona Hill's description actually stopped me in my track she was like i mean i say that she's she basically paraphrasing said you know i i've joked <laughs> about this but honestly i think that the image of him you know in the attic of the kremlin surrounded by like old maps and history books um where because basically he's like saying a lot of things that indicate that that's what he's been doing the way that he talks about old Russia and one Russia hmm. um, and borders, um, you know, it, it's like she's like, I, it, it, I can just picture him in the attic surrounded by these old crusty maps for the last two years. And he's obsessed. Um, and now we're all sort of dealing with the brunt of that um, deterioration of his sort of sanity. And, and even even his cal I feel like previously he seemed more calculating. Um, I think that he's been surprised and I'm curious if you agree that 
you know, one, he didn't invade any Ukrainians, like, threw down their arms and were like, thank you, welcome. That's one, you know, one thing <laughs> that I think he mis- misjudged a bit. And also, I think that he misjudged Zelensky. Do you think that he misjudged either of those things, the reaction of the American, uh, not the American people, the Ukrainian people, or or the president, which he obviously underestimated? Yeah, certainly he underestimated the Ukrainian people. Um, you know, part of that comes from his contempt for Ukrainian people um, and from, you know, stereotypes and the fact that he's surrounded by sycophantic lackeys who, if they sensed that there was going to be a fierce armed resistance in Ukraine, I don't know if they would have told him um, because, you know, that would threaten their own life. This is one of the weak the weaknesses of dictatorship. Right. Um, I think they were not anticipating, you know, cities like Kiev, uh, you know, that are associated with kind of a intelligentsia and like, you know, being very modern, kind of cool, you know, that people would go and get Kalashnikovs and and would lead this really fierce uh, militaristic armed resistance. But people on the ground in Ukraine have been saying that for a while. And the thing is, you know, he invaded them in 2014. So this is never some abstract concept for people in Ukraine. And of course, before that, you have centuries of invasion of Ukraine uh, by Russia. So this is like part of the national consciousness. But they've been preparing mentally, at least for this moment, since uh, 2014. And also Putin announced this, like he said around, mm-hmm. you know, November, December, I'm invading Ukraine this winter. <laughs> and he just expected that no one was gonna do anything about it because in the past, no one did anything about it. You know, NATO, the EU, the US, like everybody looked the other way. They said, oh, it's just Crimea. They shrugged their shoulders. They, sh- they thought it wouldn't escalate to this, but of course it was going to escalate to this. Um, So yeah, I think he's taken aback by that. And also, you know, Zelensky is a professional actor who is extremely skilled at media, extremely, uh, you know, calm under fire, you know, very adept, very quick. And I think that contrast and also his youth, you know, he's 44 years old, you put him up against Putin, people around the world look at Zelensky, and they see the future. And they also see the stolen future. They see that what has happened from kleptocrats and oligarchs and plutocrats stealing away the future um, of younger generations. And, you know, we all want that future back. doesn't matter if you live here or if you live in Russia or if you live in Ukraine or if you live in any other country around the world. You know, we're seeing a, a global pushback and protests in unexpected places, protests in other um, dictatorships that were once part of the USSR, protests in Belarus, in Azerbaijan, in Kazakhstan. Uh, you know, that's all very notable. You expect to see protests here. You expect to see them in places like Prague or Berlin. Um, but I think it's interesting that there's especially the Russian protests, uh, this big blowback against uh, Putin's extremely brazen, brutal invasion. Yeah, I wanted to ask you to speak more to the Russian opposition within the country. How how surprising was that? What does that look like for the people who are participating? Well, it's still, you know, in its early stages, and I don't know how much it's going to develop because they're really clamping down hard on protests, and they always have. So I wouldn't necessarily, you know, stake the outcome of this um, on Russians protesting, but I do think it's extremely admirable that they are, and I think people need to understand just how much they're risking. You know, Russians, ordinary people in Russia are in a terrible situation right now. Their whole economy has collapsed because of Putin's war. 
Um, and so, you know, they're taking to the streets. And I do wonder if because they've already lost so much because of this dictator that they all feel well, like I have nothing else to lose. Like maybe I'll get in the streets now. Like unemployed people are much more likely to take to the streets. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, you know, they have a incredibly brutal uh, police and military force that will suppress protests uh, in the most violent way possible. And today, um, you know, Navalny, uh, you know, who's the most prominent opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, in Russia, you know, called for mass protests mm -hmm. around the country. And that may have some impact because it has in the past. But I do worry about, um, you know, Tiananmen Square style, you know, just mass slaughter, honestly. I'm worried about ordinary Russians, you know, as I'm worried about, not as much, but, you know, while I'm worried about right. uh, ordinary Ukrainians. No, I mean, I feel I feel similarly about I, I just don't think that we're quite prepared for the images that we're going to see in the next week or two. Um, I think that we maybe we're underestimating the brutality of Putin also, which is why I started with the question about genocide, because I think that, um, you know, we I don't know what it is, but we apply more rational thought and strategy to what he's doing and I think that we've we've discussed this morning that I don't mm -hmm. think that we can do that any longer. I mean, I think that's evidenced by the amount of experts that were out here a whole week ago being like, he won't do it. He won't do it. And then he did it. And they're like, oh, he did it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you're supposed to be the expert. You work at a place that has Eurasia in the title and you're supposed to know about this and tell us. And you were completely wrong. Um, yeah, a lot of these experts are appeasers. I mean, this situation has been driving me crazy for two decades. Like before I went back into journalism, I studied uh, former Soviet Central Asia. And it was always this like, oh, you know, we just need to work with them. We need to understand it's a different way of life. I'm like, dictatorship is not a right. way of life for anybody living under it. And you can't negotiate with people who constantly act in bad faith, who have a team of propagandists, who are soaking your institutions in their blood money. I mean, that's really crazy critical. Like, for example, um, you know, there was a group called the Kleptocracy Initiative in the United States. It was funded by a Russian oligarch in part so that they would not look into his own kleptocracy. Like okay. they do things like that to control the narrative. I'm not saying like everybody who called this wrong or got this wrong is some sort of paid stooge, but I think that they're, they're in a bubble, you know, mm. and they don't like it when that bubble is punctured. And I think that they've spent so long on the defensive for Putin in part, you know, because a lot of people really did think that the diplomacy would help uh, resolve the worst outcomes. And ideally it would, um, but, you know, they should have abandoned any pretense of idealism about Putin a long time ago. I mean, certainly since his invasion of Georgia or his poisonings of people on foreign soil, going back to, to Litvinenko um, in the mm -hmm. UK in 2006, like it's a long history here. And I, I think they were, they were in denial and it's really sad and it's saddest most for the people in Ukraine or in Syria or in other countries where Russia um, has acted with violence. You mentioned the poisoning. That's the other thing that I've been sort yeah. of rabbit holing about because I think, you know, obviously yesterday there was a lot of discussion about his threats over the weekend and nuclear posturing, but it's actually the poisonings that I thought about yesterday for a long period of time because I'm like, I don't think our imaginations are big enough going back to that point. Like, yeah, is, is that something that you're very concerned about? Because I, there are a lot of really awful sadistic ways 
he can utilize his arsenal of of all kinds of dirty chemical weapons um, against civilian populations, against political enemies. I mean, are you afraid that that is also something we could see happen? That, that I mean, like, forget nukes. Like, you know, I feel like he's not going to do that first. He'll do a lot of other things before he gets to that. Yes. Yeah, I think chemical weapons are certainly something he may do. And I think if you want to see what Russia will likely do to Ukraine. And again, I, I hope it doesn't happen. Look at what they did to Syria. You know, when, mm. when the Russian military was given a list of places not to bomb, like hospitals, for example, schools, they would bomb them intentionally. You know, it was a war on civilians. It, it, it's just, it's brutal. It's meant to be vicious. It's meant to harm innocent people. It's meant to show that, that there's no concern for human life. And they, you know, they hate Ukrainians far more than they hate uh, Syrians. And so they, there's no limit to, to what they will do. And everyone needs to keep this in mind. And in Ukraine, they understand that. Like when it comes to something like poisoning, like, well, they try to poison Zelensky, uh, you know, they've all observed these, this pattern of poisonings of, uh, you know, rivals to Putin. And they know that this is something he's going to try. And so they're going to take every protective measure that they can, whether they'll succeed. I don't know. I mean, he, he also managed to get to other people who were just as, uh, you know, vigilant, uh, um, and protective and who did their best to try to, to keep themselves from harm. Uh, but I'm, I'm more worried uh, to some extent about just the, the broader civilian right. casualties uh, that this war will produce. Um, and, you know, I'm just saddened because everyone acted too late. Like the, if they had acted earlier, if they had enforced sanctions, you know, isolated Russia on the geopolitical, you know, stage of influence, drained their money, maybe some of this, a lot of this could have been avoided, but they were just happy taking that money and, and they did not act in time. I, I wanted to ask a, a, a sort of high level question as somebody who actually, who, who walked into this moment with a solid foundation of understanding as to, you know, how, how this part of the world operates and what the concerns are, where do you go for news? Because we're here in this like fog of war and we're seeing these images. Uh, we're seeing lots of stuff coming out from social media. It's giving us a sort of clear view of what's happening on the ground, but also we are very susceptible to propaganda. So can, can you help our listenership understand how to decode the messages that we're getting, what we should trust, what we should take with a grain of salt? Are there tips and tricks that the average citizen ought to know in this moment? Yeah, I mean, this is a complicated conflict. I mean, my first bit of advice is, you know, don't follow anybody or listen to anybody who like didn't know where Ukraine was on a map before last week or you know like follow the people who've been studying this conflict and reporting from the ground when it was you know not something of interest to the west and again you know Ukrainians have been trying to get this story um to you know western interests make them aware of this threat for a long time um you know there are good reporters who've been on the ground there on and off for years uh Terrell Starr uh for example mm -hmm. is is somebody right. to follow and he has a very rich, nuanced uh, understanding of the conflict, you know, and I would also listen to Ukrainians like Kiev Post. There are lots of uh, Ukrainian publications posting on this. Um, and of course, my advice to follow experts comes with the caveat of what we were just discussing before that a lot of these experts got this really wrong. Um, so just, you know, look for mm -hmm. the ones who got it right, or at least are willing to, to 
you know, learn from their mistakes and might have other useful areas of expertise uh, to offer. You know, they're not usually wrong about absolutely everything. So, uh, and kind of just, just stay away from the superficial people and the warmongers, the people who are like getting off on this war, treating it like a video game, making Zelensky a meme instead of a person. Like the more it's dehumanized, the more it's depersonalized, the worse the coverage is, is going to be in every respect. And it's just bad for your soul too. I've been so uncomfortable the whole time. The memification is really like, I mean, I've sort of, you know, we're all sharing them. We've seen them in our feeds. Um, But I'm like, is he going to be alive next week? Right. So like this is not I'm not okay with any of the sort of making him into a part of the zeitgeist as opposed to keeping him grounded where he is, which is being bombed as the president of a sovereign country and he's a human being with a family a wife and two kids that's it i mean that's the other part of it is like i'm scared for the whole family oh yeah his wife is also posting and and i hadn't quite sort of like read a lot or internalized a lot of information about her until this week um but i just i i'm nervous about that as well i mean what is like what i'm scared to ask what keeps you up at night at this point? Um, if if Freezing. if that is a thing that is happening. Well, that's happening. That's why I slept through State of the Union. I fell asleep at like 7:30. <laughs> I mean, you know, the thing I'm I'm most worried about, you know, and I hate to say it right now, is this threat of nuclear warfare because Putin is being very blunt about it. He's saying, yes, we will absolutely do this. And I don't even know if they'll start um, with Ukraine. I think they might do it somewhere else to just show they're willing. There's that. There's the genocide. There's the mass civilian casualties. There's the fact that this will, you know, draw in the whole world. It already has drawn in the whole world. And, you know, the West is in a weakened and compromised position. And now it's trying to dig itself out of that hole, you know, get rid of this oligarch money, this mafia money, et cetera. But, you know, we the other thing people don't like to bring up is we had a Kremlin asset as the president for four Mm -hmm. years. We had someone who was loyal to Vladimir Putin and also to other dirty foreign operatives, oligarchs, et cetera, uh, much more than he was loyal to the United States and whose team was completely content to give away or trade or potentially sell state secrets. You know, like that whole team would not have passed a normal security clearance, especially Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump. And so you need to assume that the, that the national security of the United States is greatly compromised and that Russia has an incredible advantage in having all of this information mm. likely given to him. And we've seen incidences of this. We saw, you know, Kislyak and Lavrov partying with Trump in the Oval Office, um, you know, right after he fired Comey. And, you know, while I don't like Comey, you know, the reason they fired him is because he was looking mm-hmm. into Trump's connections with Russia. And this was all very blatant and everyone wants to memory hold this they want to forget that paul manafort's a kremlin agent and he helped orchestrate um you know violence in ukraine on putin's behalf before and then went on to manage trump's campaign and then was pardoned by trump and now where is he i mean i don't even see this being covered as a potential threat and that concerns me because paul manafort threatens people you know he threatens you know journalists and i think that's why they're not covering him uh, that or, I mean, I don't know, maybe there, there's a worse reason. Uh, but, you know, th- those are all things um, that worry about. It's the big picture that keeps me up at night. 
<laughs> and the big picture is constantly changing and constantly moving. And it's, it's so tough to follow when we're already so stressed about the varying intersecting crises that this globe is facing right now. In the last minute that we have, how big of an issue is COVID right now? Looking at, looking at the numbers in Russia, they seem pretty horrific. Like how, how much, if any, does that play into the opposition to Putin or the likely crackdown? Yeah, it's very big. I mean, they, much like the United States, have had a um, disproportionately high death toll. They have had a disinformation warfare. People didn't want to get vaccinated, didn't want to wear masks, etc. So, uh, I mean, I feel like right now their focus is going to be on this war and the incredible economic instability and political instability and COVID. I mean, it may seem like an afterthought, but, uh, you know, there will probably be a higher death rate in Russia because people cannot function. You know, hospitals, staff, right. you know, they won't be getting paid. I don't know where that money is going to come from. So that's that's another humanitarian crisis to take into account. Sarah Kenzior, thank you as always uh, for your analysis. We really appreciate you in this moment, especially. Thanks for joining us this thank morning. Thanks for having so much. me on. Stay thank safe you. anytime. We'll be back tomorrow with another Signal Boost podcast. Thanks for listening. 